start at the movies. I, I'll be honest with you, it is my, uh, my favorite time that we do it. We've done it now for three years. Uh, I did realize last night, um, in all the other times we've done it, we've been in a larger facility, so the crunching of popcorn hasn't been quite as loud. Uh, so if you could do me a favor and chew with your mouth closed, I'd be, no, it's good. <laughs> but uh, no, make sure you enjoy yourself during this. Uh, it, it's such an exciting thing. Um, as we begin the, begin the, the, the At The Movie series, there's, there's something that you can kind of see from the outside. And so many of the blockbuster movies, so many movies in general, I think all movies, really, uh, it points back to something that's found actually in the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon writes uh, in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. You see, uh, There's actually a movie coming out in October called The Book of Life, and it has nothing to do with the Bible itself. But if you see the the trailer, if you've watched any any movies, it's been on most of the movies I've seen actually recently, uh, kid-wise and stuff. um, It opens up and says, the trailer says, all the stories are found in this book of life. And I got to thinking about that, because how often is that the case? That every movie, every book that we read outside of the Bible really has its roots in the Bible. Whether they want to or not. I mean, because isn't every story a story of heroism or a a story of, of deceit or a story of war or a story of sacrifice and love? Isn't that all found? In the Bible, now it may not be exactly the story that's written out there, but all the stories that come out, they're all right there in the Bible with us. And it's funny because even when people aren't fully obeying God, you'll, you'll see these things. Uh, you know, there's people that they don't believe in God. There's people that, that believe in God but don't really live like it. There's people that, that they only go to church at certain times a year. There's all those people out there. Some people live a moral life that have never gone to church before. Why is that? How is that? Now, there's something here that um, I guess the best way to put it is uh, it's kind of my own humble opinion. I believe that when we see things like that happen in people's lives, when we see bursts of morality in movies that have nothing really to do with Christianity, when you see it in, in stories, and once again, even just an average person that you're watching on the news, that somebody does something that is selfless, that is, even though we are marred with sin, even though we live in a fallen world, that is the image of God bursting through and showing himself. Showing himself that he has created us and that he is a part of us. And, and that that is him showing himself every step along the way, that that is something that we see. And I'm reminded that we're made in the image of God, even though we live in a fallen world. And as I look at these movies, and as I watch movies, and as we look to see what's in them, this Maleficent is no different. It's no different, because it it brings out this whole story. Um, I'm just going to let you know, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to spoil it for you, okay? I promise. Any one of the movies we talk about, my job is not to spoil it for you. If you want to watch it, great. If you don't want to watch it, just the same. But I do want to point out some things that happen. Now, if you don't know, Maleficent is actually the villain from Sleeping Beauty. In 1959, when Sleeping Beauty came out, Maleficent is the, is the villain that, that is the one that, that, uh, that puts, basically, Princess Aurora to sleep. I'm going to spoil it if you haven't seen that yet, 
Um, yeah, I would suggest you watch it. But she pricks her finger, and, you know, the, the curse is upon her, and it's all this kind of crazy thing that's going on. And in this movie, as I watched it, I saw so many things, so many things that, that really are biblical. And I'm sure that Disney's point was not to go, you know what, we want to make the most biblical movie possible for you guys to watch. That, that wasn't Disney's thing. As a matter of fact, if you go on and you Google Maleficent and, and reviews, you got people saying all kinds of stuff. It, who knows what it is. But there's the good versus the evil in Maleficent. And the, and the funny thing is, is there's a lot of times you don't know which one's supposed to be good. There's a, there's a darkness on both sides. And you know what? That is humans, isn't it? Even still today, when there is a war going on and somebody's fighting for this side and somebody's fighting for this side, and you're like, I'm not sure which side to root for. That's the way you are through this whole movie. You're like, I'm not sure which side I'm supposed to root for. There's the, the picture of human greed and what it does to people and how it changes people. And there's also the picture of ultimate love and how it changes people. And these things are things that are in the movie, and as you see it, all kind of lay, lay out there. I, I want to look at each one of those things and kind of touch on it, but there's something in the movie that, that stood out to me. And once again, I, I'm not doing this as a spoiler, okay? Like, if you haven't seen Sleeping Beauty, I apologize. Um, uh, I guess I have because, well, I have a girl, and I have to sit down uh, with my five-year-old, and she snuggles up, and she's like, let's watch this. And I'm like, oh, oh okay. Um, and, uh, and so uh, we've seen Sleeping Beauty and now seen Maleficent. And in it, you know that Princess Aurora has a curse put on her from, from the time she's young. And in the process of that curse, she is kind of hidden off, away from it. But she finds out about the curse. Before her 16th birthday, she finds out about the curse. And the curse is she's going to prick her finger on a spinning wheel. And when she does, she's going to fall into a deep sleep that can only be awoken when? When she gets Prince Charming's true love kiss. Now, I, I, um, as you see that, she finds out about the curse. And in that opening clip, you see her walking towards a spinning wheel and you see her reaching out and putting her finger on it. The whole time, you have to wrap your mind around, she knows the result if she does it. She knows the result. She understands that she is going to fall into a deep sleep, never to be awoken on her own until true love's kiss comes along. And when you see that, you think to yourself, why are you going to touch the spinning wheel? Doesn't that only make sense? Let's just pause for two seconds here. Because in our own lives, when we see something that is out there that we know is wrong, and we continue to take the steps towards it, and you see your kids do it, and you see your friends do it, and you see family members do it, don't you just look at yourself in the mirror when you do it and go, what was I thinking? I knew the end result was not going to be good, yet I did it anyway. Why is that? This story has a past and a past and a past and a past. And guess what goes back to the very first human couple? If you have your Bibles with me, do me a favor. Open up to the book of Genesis as if it's your first time ever being in church. Genesis is real easy. Hit the table of contents and flip a couple of pages over from there. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start out at. If you don't have your Bible, we have it loaded up on the YouVersion app there, uh, the Bible app on your phone, or we're going to have it up here on the screen. So Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. And we're going to take a look at this story. And this story is something that if you have been in church at least once in your life, or maybe even if you've never been to church, you know this story. 
the story of Adam and Eve and the creation and its snake talking to him and the process of a snake talking to him, them falling. You understand that. You know that. But this morning, I want you to feel it. Because too often in church, too often in Bible school, too often when the flannel graph world of a half-naked Adam and a half-naked Eve with her hair covering what needs to be covered and fig leaves covering the rest and the same kind of thing, that those things on the flannel graph, and we see a little snake come in, we just see it as a story. But there's something so very real about this that we need to wrap our minds around. And we see it in this movie about the good versus evil, about the temptation to do it even though you know the curse and yet they do it anyway, and we see it in this story as well. So let's tie it all together, but let's open up our hearts and our minds and pray that God can speak to us this morning. God, we are so thankful that we are here. We are so thankful for what you've given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. But as we look at the reason why you had to give your son, God, open our hearts and minds to feel, to understand fully what the, the overall weight of this really is god help us to understand that there are people that we know and maybe even people in this room that need that true love kiss we pray it on your name amen starting in genesis chapter 1 verse 26 it says then god said let's make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There's that whole thing about our image, his image bursts through even when we're covered in the junk that we're covered in. And it says in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree that has seeds in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, It was what? Very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested. I just threw that part in there because we've talked about that for the last three weeks. So I thought you guys might want to tie that in because it's actually in the Bible as well. Um, He rested from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Skip down to verse 15 for me. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, what? You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. Did they know what was going to take place if they ate of the tree of good and evil? The knowledge, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They knew Just like Princess Aurora knew that she would fall into a deep sleep if she pricked her finger on it. So what would be the natural response that we should do? If you know that you will surely die, don't do it. Right? That seems just so smart, doesn't it? If you knew it was going to destroy your marriage, don't do it. If you knew it was going to destroy your finances, don't do it. Yet guess what? 
Yeah, let's read on. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. And here's where the story kicks off. Skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent. Everybody know who the serpent is? Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20 tells us the serpent is Satan. So the Satan was more crafty. That's a very important, important part to look at right here. When it says, is more crafty than any of the other beasts on the field. Any other, anybody else. He is more crafty. Guess what? There are days that I think I'm pretty smart. There are days that you think you're pretty smart. Satan can outwit us. Satan can twist things. Satan can use our weaknesses against us. He is crafty. He's been around a whole lot longer than we have. He's done it to lots of other people before us, and he'll continue to do it on people after us until Jesus comes and stops it. The thing is, we see it right here, that he was more crafty, and he's very crafty with Eve. We have to watch what he does here. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Isn't that a question we ask ourselves a lot to justify what we're doing? Well, did God really say that I'm not allowed to? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? That is not what God said. As a matter of fact, we already read what God said in chapter 2, verse 16, when he said, there's only one tree you're not allowed to eat of. You notice how that's kind of a crafty little twist that Satan puts out there? What is the twist? Well, he kind of says it wrong, which engages conversation with Eve, when Eve probably should have just taken off and never been talking to a snake in the first place, because that's just weird anyway. But the, the whole thing is, is she should have taken off. But he kind of, I don't know, enticed her? He kind of just baited her on saying, hey, did God really say that you're not allowed to eat of it? And she's like, no, God didn't say that. This is what God actually said, and she says it right here. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what he said? That is not what he said. He didn't say anything about touching it. She added that. Isn't it amazing how we can add to what God says to make it sound a little bit better? But there is one thing that I see in that verse right there. She understood the end result. She will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. Now as I look at that, if you read 1 John 2.16, there are three things that are listed in that verse that says are not of the Father. You know what they are? It's the desire of the flesh, which is, tastes good for food. It is a del- desire for the eyes, which is, it was a delight to the eyes. And it was a pride of life and understanding that she could be wise if she ate it. Those are not from the Father. And so we see it start to lay out here. And she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Pause for just a second there. If you came to the marriage uh, conference that we did, the simulcast with Mark Driscoll, he made a very big point of this. I just want to reiterate what he said in case you were here and in case you weren't here. And if we're, you know, Where was Adam in all of this? Where was Adam in all this? No. He was right there. And what was he doing? 
Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's a problem, gentlemen. That's a problem that we still suffer from today. We have a tendency to do absolutely nothing when we should be the ones stepping in. When we should be the ones making sure this stuff doesn't happen. But he was there doing nothing. As a matter of fact, not only did he do nothing, he partook in the eating of this fruit. And then both eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. See, when God made us, he made us in relationship or to have a relationship with him and to have a relationship with others and to have a relationship with creation and to have a relationship even with ourselves. And the second that sin entered the human world, the second that this all happened, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. Because before it, they were naked and they were unashamed because they were able to have a relationship without any problems whatsoever. But now, naked, not so good. Naked is not so good. And now they're covering themselves. And you know what? We all sit in here clothed today for that very reason. Because it'd be really weird if you were sitting in here unclothed, okay? It'd be really strange. As a matter of fact, when I was in Ethiopia, there was three different times, three different times that I'm driving down the road and there's a dude that's wearing sandals and a sport coat. And that's it. Three different times, three different people. I don't know if there's a specific thing that was going on there that people thought, hey, I'm getting ready to go to a business interview, so I better put on a sport coat. But, I mean, everything else was there. Yeah, you got to be dressed up and ready to go. You got your sandals on, you got your sport coat on. I was like, what was that? I can't take a picture of it because I can't show it to anybody. And now that picture's ingrained in my head forever. Yeah, and now you guys all got it now, okay? And, you know, it was, it was so strange because there's a weirdness there. We don't particularly like to be naked. We're not, we don't even have that relationship with ourselves. We're like, hey, hey, I look good. You know, that, that is not all we do. We don't like walking around the house even when there's nobody there. It doesn't matter. There's just, there's just weirdness to it. And this is where it all happened at, right here. And it, it's because that, that relationship was broken and sin entered. And it's going to affect us and it's going to, to mar us and it's going to stain us and all the relationship we have. And they basically said, you know what? We are no longer one. We're two separate beings and we're going to separate ourselves with loincloths, with fig leaves, with these things. You cover your sin, I'll cover mine. And that's kind of where it all started at. And in verse 8 it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And man and his wife They hid themselves. Why'd they hide themselves? Because sin causes us to hide from God. Sin causes us to be separate from God. We don't want to because his perfection will expose us. And we want to be hidden from him. And he says, uh, uh, sorry, he goes on from there. It says, from the presence of the Lord, the God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to who? Who did he call to? Adam. Why did he call to Adam? Because he's a man. He's the man that should have been doing something. It's recognized there the man should be the head. And he said, where are you? As if God didn't know. And he said, I, you ever wonder what happened to we in this situation? Because it used to be we with everything. But now all of a sudden everything becomes an I. Because there's this separation that takes place. I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. 
He said, who told you you were naked? Right to the point. God doesn't beat around the bush or in this case a tree. But the, the whole idea is he gets right to the point. He, does, he doesn't pull any punches. He says, who said you were naked? And he said, well, you know, have you eaten from the tree of which I have not, or of which I've commanded you not to eat? Not that I suggested that you don't eat. I, I commanded that you don't eat. And the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and guess what? I ate it. Typical, isn't it? Just a little bit. Because he ate, yet who did he blame? The woman and God. See, I was doing fine down here in the garden by myself. I was playing with the lions and the tigers and the bears. It was good. We were hanging out. And then you're like, hey, you know what? You look like you're alone. So uh, I'm going to put you in a sleep. I'm going to take a rib out. I'm going to make you a woman. You, God, gave me that woman, and she's the one. It's not my fault. That was the first time of many, 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 many times that we didn't take responsibility. Look at our culture today. Does our culture take responsibility for anything, or do we blame something or someone else? I mean, it is just crazy to think uh, of, of people saying that it is McDonald's fault for making them overweight. No, it's, it's our fault because we go to McDonald's. You know, that is the truth and the reality of it all. And they say something about, well, the doctor didn't prescribe me the right kind of medication, the right amount, or too much, or whatever it might be. That's an excuse. We say, you know what, uh, there are so many things out there that I have to have to keep up with that that's what got me into debt, not my own jo- choices. There's all of these things that we lay out there, and we don't take responsibility for ourselves, when in reality, it all boils down to us. Because though we may not be able to... Um, you know, create the actual situation, we can determine how we respond to it. And that's exactly what Adam didn't do. He didn't become the first one to say, it is my fault, I have sinned. No, he blamed somebody else. So what's God do? He turns to the woman. He says, Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, I have sinned. Forgive me, Lord. Nope. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. The serpent deceived me and I ate. You know what the one thing that really surprised me in this? It's not the fact that she blamed the serpent. It's the fact that she didn't blame Adam. Why is that? Why did she not blame Adam? Why is it even still today that women do not blame their husbands when the husband really is at fault? Because wasn't Adam really at fault here when he stood by and did nothing? Why is it that when I talk to people that, that and we have a, quite a few people that I've found out that, that work in social work within our church. And it seems that women who get abused and things like that, they never seem to blame their husbands. They blame themselves. They blame somebody else for what their husbands has done to them. Why is that? I, I don't have the answer for it. I'm sure maybe within social work they do, but I don't have the answer for that. But why is it that she didn't blame her husband? What was it that is, is she trying to protect him? And is that truly protection in, in all of this? And we see it comes down, and the Lord turns to the, to the serpent and says, you know what? Some things are going to happen. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and in the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And you see, that curse didn't just affect the serpents. 
It also affected us here in New Mexico. We eat dust all the time. And I, th- I believe it is his fault right there. Okay? So, so we need to understand there's a, there's a principle there, too, that our choices don't just affect us. It affects everybody. So uh, verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You understand what God just laid out right there? God just laid out Jesus and the plan of salvation. Because most times we look in the Bible, it never talks about her offspring. It talks about the man's offspring and, and where the, it came from. The man. Here, he's specifically laying out from a woman. The offspring of a woman is going to crush the head of this serpent. And he's going to be bruised on the heel. We see it laid out right here. He's already got a plan in place for salvation to take place. He turns to the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Ladies, you can thank Eve. Okay, that, that's just what it boils down to. You can thank that pain. I have never experienced it, but I have sat in the room with it and went, wow, that's got to hurt. You know, so the, 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 it's all right there. And it says, you shall des- your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you that you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, and as, as Jerome told me last night, and broccoli, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the food. By the sweat of your faith you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Till you return to the ground. What's that mean? You die. That was not a part of the original plan. But when sin entered the world, when they ate of that tree, what was the result? You shall die. You shall return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife named Eve because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin. Where does God, he, God get skin from? Animals. Animals who are no longer alive because death has entered the world. And he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, why would God not want him to live forever? Because there's evil. Because he's full of sin. Why He wouldn't want him to live forever. So he's actually protecting Adam here as he kicks him out of the garden. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way. To the tree of life. Sin entered the human race. This is the story that we all know. We've all heard. Like I said, whether you've been in church once or since the day you were born. You understand the idea of Adam and Eve sinning. And that sin has, has created a mess for this world. And God laid it out ahead of time. He said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. But I guess the question really for us is, is what is sin? What is sin? How do we define it? See, in Genesis 1.31, I had you guys tell me what that verse said about what God had created before sin entered the world. It was what again? It was very good. 
It was very good. As a matter of fact, the word in Hebrew is the word shalom. And that's how they greet people over there. I haven't had an opportunity to do it. I did a VBS one time, and we did a lot of shalom stuff, and so that's how I learned it. But um, the, the whole idea of, of shalom is peace. It is perfection. It's without tears. It's without pain. It's without all the things that just happened to come when sin came down. Shalom was interrupted. Shalom was violated when sin came into the world. See, when sin showed up, it brought death. It brought suffering. It brought injustice. It brought boredom. It's kind of funny. Jerome and I were talking about it last night after, after service was over. He said, you think like the very first conversation afterwards was uh, with Adam and Eve? They're like, hey, so what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I'm kind of bored. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? You know, that, that whole thing. Sin brought that. Sin brought boredom. It brought annoyances. It brought miseries. It brought fears. It brought illness. It brought pain, sorrow, grief, despair. The list goes on and on and on. Think about the images that the Bible used to talk about sin, rebellion, folly, self-abuse, madness, treason, death, hatred, spiritual adultery, missing the mark, wandering from the path, idolatry, insanity, irrationality, pride, selfishness, blindness, deafness, a hard heart, a stiff neck, delusion, unreasonableness, and self-worship. That's a lot of words, but that's what sin brought. That is the images that are painted as we look at sin. So what's the actual definition of sin? It's that missing of the mark. But if we don't have a functional definition of sin, I think we miss the importance of Jesus dying for our sins. And that functional definition would be sins of commission and sins of omission. And when I say commission, it means that that is the the things that you do that you know you shouldn't. And then you have the sins of omission, the things that you know you should do, but you failed to do. There's sins of commission and there's sins of omission. And, you know, you start thinking about what sin includes. Sin includes our thoughts. Sin includes our words. Sin includes our motives. Sin includes what we do and why we do it. It's godlessness which is ignoring God. Sins are also breaking of the laws. And that could be the laws of our countries or the laws of what God has laid out for us or even like the laws of our parents. It's breaking the laws. It's violating our own conscience when the Spirit convicts you to do what is right and you still choose to do what is wrong. It includes perversion. And immediately in your mind you think, perversion, wow, that's, that's way out there. But perversion is basically taking a good thing and using it for sin. And it can go, yes, in the, the realm of where your mind immediately went when I said perversion, but it can also just go in the way of technology. You know, you can take technology and say, we're going to do a whole thing about email prayer requests, which is great, but it can also become email gossip, which is perverted, of what God has given us. See, there's good things. I do most of my studying now online. Most of my stuff is on my computer. I had books and books and books and books, and they were just there to look pretty, so I sold them all. I didn't need them, and I don't, they don't fit in that little office right there anyway, so they had to go. And I started to realize, you know, the Internet is an amazing tool for that stuff, but the Internet is also full of lots of junk. There are things that are good, and we can take those good things, we can pervert them. Perversion. It also includes pollution, taking something good and adding to it kind of like what Eve did. 
It's turning a good thing into a God thing. When you live for money, and you live for fame, and you live for power, and you live for prestige. All those things are good things, but when they become a God thing, it's not so much. It's finding your identity in anyone or anything other than Jesus. That is sin. And that is where we're at. Now, the next question I get asked a lot, is all sin equal? Is all sin equal? And that's a, that's a great question. Because is all sin equal? In one manner, the answer is yes. All sin is equal because Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And guess what? One sin makes us imperfect, so that makes all sin equal in the fact we are not perfect because of it. However, you take the other side of it all, and you see the sin is not all equal in its effect. And the way that it affects us and the way that it affects others. Because when we lie, it can have a small effect or it can have a large effect. But if we murder somebody, it's going to be a whole lot bigger effect. So in that way, they're not the same. But in God's eyes, they are the same because we all fall short. And, you know, we look at that and we say, well, okay, we read about Adam. We read about Adam and Eve and them sinning. What does that have to do with me? And I'm going to throw out kind of a big word here for you, because when Adam sinned, it became all of our sin. And you may go, well, how exactly does that work? There's this word, uh, and it's called imputed, okay, which means basically we receive what comes down from somebody else. And, and we can get that even still today. You know, if you have a family member who is in debt and they die and that debt can be passed on to you in some way, shape, or form, you know, uh, that, that can happen in generational cursing. Throughout the Bible we see that. It go, gets passed down. Well, guess what? When Adam sinned, his sin was imputed onto each one of us. It was passed down to each one of us. And if you really, really want to get into it sometime, we can sit down and talk about Romans chapter 5. But um, I, I think that if we talked about Romans chapter 5, verses about 12 through 21, which talks about that imputation of, of Adam's sin unto us, uh, Maleficent will probably be out on DVD by the time we're done talking about it, and we can just watch it together. So we're just going to talk about it. If you want to read it, if you want to look at commentaries on it, it's an impressive set of Scripture there. What I want to do, though, is, is the result of original sin. The result of that sin that Adam did that was imputed unto us made it necessary for each and every one of us to have to have true love's kiss. To bring us out of that. And you're like, why in the world in the Bible does it talk about true love's kiss? That doesn't, that's, not, that's not biblical. I want you to, to see this in Romans chapter 3. Because sometimes we think, well, that doesn't make sense that, that Adam would need to do that. And we would have to have this true love's kiss. Look what it says in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. As, rich, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Skipping down to verse 23, it says, For all have sinned, all meaning all, 
all meaning me, all meaning you, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that leaves us? It leaves us short, standing outside of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 actually tells us, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We have earned death because of our sin. And I like to say this to all the kids all the time because they just giggle when I say it. The coolest thing about that verse is it doesn't stop there. The coolest thing about that verse is it has the biggest but in the Bible. Okay? It says, but. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See how I said that Adam's sin was imputed down to us? Well, guess what? When Jesus went to the cross for us, look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made himself to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only was that imputed down, when Jesus died on the cross, grace, salvation was imputed down to us. If we choose to accept it. You know, you go to any movie. And those feel-good movies always seem to have somebody who sacrifices for somebody else. Those ones that you see somebody sacrificing their lives so that the rest of the team or the rest of the country or the rest of the army or whatever it might be gets inspired to move forward. John 15, 13. Jesus is talking to his disciples. In the process of talking to his disciples, he says this. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, once again, there are people all over this world that do not believe in the Bible. They don't believe that the Bible has anything to do with them. They think it's a good book and it has some moral teaching. It has a good moral compass to it. They didn't believe in Jesus other than he was a prophet. But it doesn't matter how much you believe in Jesus or how much you believe in the Bible. This statement is true no matter what. Because that's what movies are made out of. That's what books are made of. That's what makes us feel good. That's what makes us walk out and go, oh, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I could give of myself in a way that would inspire others. When somebody lays down, it's that selfless love. It's a love that didn't think, what am I going to get out of this if I do it? It's a selfless love, knowing that there is no return or possibly no return in all of this. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us. He stepped out of heaven. He put on flesh. He walked on this earth. And in the process of walking on this earth, he lived a life so that he could experience what we experienced. Yet he did it in a sinless manner. And when it finally came to the end, when they finally crucified him, they beat him and they tortured him and they hung him on a cross that he would die for you and he would die for me. Because why? We weren't good enough. We were all standing outside of God's glory until he did that, until that was all there. And, you know, over the past few weeks, even as I watched the movie, I thought, how exactly can we incorporate the true love's kiss? And I, I've been hearing this song for the last few weeks. It's an older song. It's been out for a while. Um, but for whatever reason, the radio has been overplaying it for the last few weeks. And maybe it was just for me because every time I'm in the car, even driving to church last night and again this morning, I'm not joking. How he loves David Crowder. And we've sang it in here before, but it talks about, oh, how he loves us. But the original version wasn't David Crowder. It was actually written by John Mark McMillan. And when David Crowder rewrote it, he changed some words in it. And he changed one line in it that I want to read for you. 
Actually, I want to read kind of the, the whole thing to you here as we go through it. Because feel the impact of the words as we think about what Christ did for us. That we were far from Him. That we were sinners. That we had separated ourselves because the sin was in there. And He did this for me. He says, He is jealous for me. God is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of His wind and His mercy. I mean, think about the word picture there. Just to think about the, the idea of, of a hurricane pushing down on a tree. And it's like the weight of his wind and his mercy is, is on us. When all of a sudden, I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I realize, I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Because see, we are so separated. Sin has separated us completely. Why would God continue to pursue us? Why would God, even when Adam and Eve did what they did, you think he didn't know when he went walking in the cool of the day in the garden what had taken place? No, but he pursued after Adam and Eve. Where are you? Coming after them. Verse 2. We are his portion and he is our prize. Drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. So heaven meets earth. And this is where it says, unforeseen kiss in David Crowder's version. But the original version written by John Mark McMillan was with a sloppy, wet kiss. And I thought to myself as I, as I heard that, why in the world did they change it? And you look and you read, and the funniest thing is as Christians, we fight about the stupidest things. And they actually changed the words because they didn't think sloppy wet kiss was theological enough or appropriate because it was gross. And you know what? There's some truth to a gross, sloppy wet kiss. See, there are two people in my life that have horribly sloppy wet kisses, or I should say had. Uh, My grandfather, Grandpa John, and he loved me like nobody else. I was his first grandson. He spoiled me rotten. He loved my kids, his great-grandkids. Uh, well, at that point, he died before the only Camden was born at the time, but he spoiled Camden like nobody's business. And, but he had this approach when it came to a kiss, and his lips would be all the goo that's here in the corner, and he would come kind of open mouth, kind of, uh, and it would, you'd be like, whoa, hey, you know. <laughs> and, and it would, he would hit you on the cheek, and it would leave a mark. But at the same time, as, as gross as that sounds, it was him saying, Matt, I love you. I love you with everything. I'll do anything for you. And, and that was him saying it. And, it, yeah, you kind of be like, oh, afterwards, and, and we, we actually have a joke. We'd be like, hey, you want a Grandpa John kiss? And we'd be like, uh, you know, and we, we, would, <laughs> we would do that to each other, you know, kind of thing. And, but somebody else in my family that has recently come has now adopted Grandpa John's kissing style. And that's Indale. Indale, uh, man, that kid, he slobbers like nobody's, it's always wet around his mouth. You'd be like, give me a kiss. He'd be like, ah, and you're like, oh, hey, yeah. Mm. You know, because it's going to shine when he leaves your, your face. It's, it's just dripping. I mean, even last night I was holding him during service, and he was just running down my shoulder, and I'm like, oh, you know, and there's something kind of gross about it, but at the same time, there's that love that is there, and it's displayed for all to see. And when you see that heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, think about when Jesus came to this earth, that it wasn't a clean transition that took place. It wasn't a clean 
slate that just happened. There was beating, and there was blood, and there was the defeating of sin that was a mess when Jesus came down here. But he did it for us because he loved us. It was a sloppy, wet, messy, gross kiss, but he did it because he loves us. That verse goes on to say, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest, and I don't have time to maintain my regrets. I don't have time to think about the sins that, that I've had in my life, the, the ways that I've failed. God, I'm not good enough for you. And he says, you know what? You don't have to be good enough for me. Don't take time and dwell on your regrets. Think about the way that I love you. Oh, how he loves us. See, Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think about that verse and I think about the beginning of Romans chapter 8. When it says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no curse. There is no imputed sin that is going to separate you from me. For those who are what? Good enough? Smart enough? No, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is true love's kiss setting free us from the curse that came down from original sin. Let's praise God for that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. So thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Because, God, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We weren't good enough. We weren't smart enough. We weren't pretty enough. God, we are ugly in our sin. We continue to fall into the trap of we know the end result, but we'll do it anyway. God, you still loved us anyway. You still sent your one and only son to die for us. God, this morning, help us to wrap our heads around that, that we were dead without you until you stepped in and gave us a sacrifice that only you could give. God, I pray for anybody in here that doesn't fully comprehend that. I pray for anybody in here that is having a hard time with the idea that you would love us that much. Somebody maybe that's thinking, I am not good enough. I, I can't possibly accept something like that. That is much too good of a gift. And yes, in honesty, it is much too good of a gift, but it's much too good of a gift for any of us. But the great thing about a gift is, it's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's given. All we have to do is open it. God, I pray this morning that if there's anybody in here that needs to open that gift of your salvation, I pray that they do it right here and right now. pray it in your name. Amen. I'm going to step over into this uh, little side area where the popcorn smell is oozing from, and uh, I, I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray with you about this very thing, that if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you're still living in that cursed walk of death, that God has spoke to you this morning. Last night we had a little boy come. He accepted Jesus with his grandma, but he wants to be baptized and tell the whole world. If that's something else maybe you want to do, 